Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys. Good evening, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host of the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Happy to have with us in our studios this evening, Gene Ferraro. Gene is the Chief Executive Officer of Forensic Pathways and has been a friend and colleague for many, many years. Gene and I have worked together, have uh, trained hundreds of uh, investigators and others over the years. And uh, we're exceptionally fortunate to have him here in the studios today. Gene, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Thank you very much, Joe. Glad to be here. Before we get started in the program, I would like to uh, extend our sympathy and condolences to the families of those who were involved in uh, 9-11, those who lost their lives there, and also acknowledge and thank all of the first responders for their efforts and work that they did uh, to help America be safe now. Thank you to everyone involved. Uh, Gene, why don't you give us a little of your background. Gene is going to present this evening on how to overcome the natural fears and anxiety of testifying in court or for depositions. So, Gene. Thank uh, you, Joe. As you know, Joe, I've been a uh, corporate investigator for about uh, 35 years. I'm a former uh, military officer and a graduate of Naval Justice School. It was through the military that I was first exposed to our system of justice. As a prosecutor in the United States of Marine Corps, I not only handled criminal cases, but civil cases up to but not including capital crimes. When I completed my military obligation, I became involved in the private sector my first job was that of a private investigator working for a fellow whose company was called Hollywood Detectives. And guess where? Hollywood, California. There you go. I outgrew his organization, eventually found my way to the corporate investigation firm Kraut & Schneider, had also headquartered in Los Angeles. And uh, it was that time in history when uh, America discovered substance abuse in the workplace and we became involved in undercover investigations. And our organization eventually morphed, as well as my expertise, in the area of employee misconduct and workplace misconduct and eventually became specialized in fraud investigations. And that's my specialty today. Over the course of that uh, my career, I've testified in uh, not less than 300 cases, both civil and criminal, and I guess that's our topic today. Both as an expert witness and as a fact witness, I'm sure. And uh, Gene uh, modestly has not said, but he is also the author of about 16 books and I think has another one uh, on the way to the press now. So, uh, Gene... Tell us about uh, how to overcome our fears and anxieties in testifying in court and depositions. Sure. Let's, ta let's take it for the time in, uh, from the top, Joe, and talk a little bit about our system, how, how the uh, courts work, where, where do those who have to testify, where do they testify, and what are the venues. So let's just start with the, our system of justice in the United States. We have uh, two verticals, the civil justice system and the criminal justice system. Um, at the state level, 
we have uh, uh, a state supreme court, a court of appeals, trial court, and other county courts which support the system in the venue um, of both state, county, and other municipalities or parishes. On the other side, we have the federal court system, which is very similar, but at the top of the food chain is the Supreme Court. So cases that uh, go through the court system, whether civil or criminal, usually begin at a lower court and find find themselves involved uh, or eventually evolve and become involved um, if, in the event of an appeal, an appellate court, and uh, in some cases, rare cases, find their way to the Supreme Court. At the court level, though, um, or in court, there's a number of different players, and most uh, most of us know that we have judges, of course, but we also have important players in the system, including bailiffs and court reporters. The bailiff sort of runs the show in today's technology world. These are individuals that are tech-savvy and uh, handle all the logistics of the courtroom, um, the bringing in of the jury, the ex- excusing of the jury, but also all of the video evidence and the technology that's used in the modern courtroom. The court reporter is responsible for recording, not uh, um, electronically, but actually keying every word and enunciation made by either the judge or the parties, including um, uh, the attorneys involved in the case. And of course, well known to everybody, there's juries. What most people don't know, though, that uh, not all juries are 12 jurors. Um, most of the court and state court a state court and municipal level, um, the juries are either five, six, or depending upon the jurisdiction, as many as nine. In some cases, depending upon the case and the choice of the parties, could be as few as three jurors. So there's a process in the selection of the jurors. They have to qualify. They have to uh, 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 go through a process of answering questions, both plaintiff and defense counsel, or defense and the state in the case of criminal courts and once selected they're seated and given instructions by by the judge and of course the last and what we think are the most important parties are either the the plaintiff and defendant or uh, the criminal defendant and the the prosecutor so those are the essential players in addition to that we have witnesses and there's two different types of witnesses the fact witness and that's what we most often see in television and the movie. Um, But in addition to that, we have what are called expert witnesses, and that's sort of my space, Joe. Although I've testified in many cases as a fact witness, as an an investigator and fraud examiner presenting my case, but uh, the court allows the... um, the fact witnesses to only testify to that which they know. There's a few exceptions. They can tell whether the day on the event in question was sunny, the size of the person, they were tall or short, but essentially they're they're restricted to testifying only that which they know. They cannot testify to what they thought someone thought or so, what someone else said unless it was said directly to them. If it's something that was told to somebody who told them, that's called hearsay. An expert witness is quite different. An expert can testify to his opinion. In in fact, his or her opinion is the reason we have expert witnesses to afford the court, including the jury and the judge, 
of the parties involved insight into the expertise that may not be common knowledge in my particular area that's fraud examination but there are experts on the uh, in the area of weather aircraft travel safety how automobile brakes work of course uh, in the field of medicine and so on before we get into uh, the other aspects of this, Gene, why don't you speak a little bit about the two different kinds of law. We have the statute law and law that is case law, and explain the difference to uh, the public for us. Now, that's a good question, Joe, and many people don't know it. Our system of law is what we call the common law system. It's a composition of both the statute, but also the decisions made in cases prior, with a criminal or, or civil, that the that the jury, the judge, the the actors in the trial, <clears throat> base those decisions. That is the ultimate decision, the outcomes of the case, based not only on the letter of the law, but on the basis of what laws have been inter or how the laws have been interpreted interpreted in the past, and that's called case law. And case law p- plays a very significant role. When we think about the, 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 the Supreme Court, it plays the most important role because it's the decision of the Supreme Court, the nine justices, to decide not only on the letter of the law, but render an opinion what was the intention and the rule of the law, and those decisions are used in later cases. That common law system is contrasted with what is called civil law, such as our brethren in Great Britain, they have a civil law system in which historical cases and precedent set by prior cases are not used in the decision making. So the laws are held strictly to the letter of law, making sometimes it's very difficult because sometimes what laws are not that well written and the outcomes are significantly influenced as a result of it. And the judge's interpretation of the law and their understanding of it may be different in district court as to the court of appeals and to the Supreme Court. And each set of judges or group of judges uh, have their interpretation of the law and it uh, can stop at any level or it can be appealed uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court of the state or in federal cases or others, it may go to the Supreme Court of the United States before it's ultimately decided, and whatever that decision is becomes case law. And uh, let me just uh, share with you in the audience right now, I had an interesting situation several years ago when I was doing uh, some work for a case, uh, and we were really working on a child custody matter, and during the course of that, we uh, I had to... Uh, interview some people uh, at a brokerage firm because the uh, mother of the child involved had been uh, a clerk in a brokerage firm and uh, our client had lost uh, uh, a significant amount of money and couldn't find her stock certificates and we ultimately found out that uh, while she was an elderly lady by the way and when she left the law firm uh, or the brokerage firm to go back home Uh, She got home and found out she didn't have her stock certificates that she went to the firm to pick up. And ultimately, the investigation proved that the uh, clerk on the front desk that she was talking with uh, had scooped the stock certificates up and took them to another part of the state, opened an account, put them in there, and used them for uh, 
her own benefit. She testified for the benefit of her minor child, who was the subject of the custody. But uh, as the case went along, I proved that she was the thief. We went to state court, and uh, she went to Walmart and bought a $10 dress and got on the stand and cried about poor mommy trying to make it out here in the big world. And one of the men on the jury uh, felt sorry for her, so he said not guilty. So we had a hung jury, 1 to 11. And the judge did not really take a whole lot of time. He said, thank you very much for uh, your service on the jury. Uh, Mr. Prosecutor, this case is being reset for such and such a date. Be here and be ready. So everybody was ready for the next trial. And uh, fortunately, we were able to get her convicted. And she was sentenced to some jail time plus restitution and so forth. And the uh, my client had given me a photograph of her. So since we had uh, got her convicted on stealing securities, uh, I ran that story in my company newsletter with her picture. And she sued me for appropriating her own likeness to for my own uh, benefit. And, of course, we proved that my newsletter was uh, free of charge. It wasn't uh, uh, being paid for by the public, and uh, there was no benefit to me. I was merely sharing the news. But this was followed by the media throughout the state because it became a freedom of press issue. Uh, we won on the state level. They appealed uh, to the next court. Uh, that was appealed, and we ended up going to the uh, Supreme Court of the state of Colorado. And the judge there said, I know of no incident where telling the truth about a convicted felon violates their rights. So uh, not guilty. And we made law all the way up to the top court. Uh, and that now is case law in Colorado. And the media all... Uh, had a breath of uh, fresh air when that that case was over, but uh, it was uh, a little nerve-wracking for a few months. And expensive. Uh, fortunately, that's what the professional liability insurance took care of, so uh, we saw justice. And it is about uh, a few seconds here before time to go to. Oh, we've got a we've got a few minutes yet well, before time question, to go Joe, to break. So go ahead, you James. You raise an important uh, point, though. Um, as the defendant in the case and prevailing, did you recover any of your uh, costs? No. I don't know if the insurance company did or not, but I had professional liability insurance, and the only cost that I had was lack of income from having to spend time preparing for court and so forth, and that uh, really wasn't worth uh, going back to court to try to win. So, uh, okay. yeah, we came out, uh, we came out okay, and uh, justice was uh, prevailing in that case. Let's talk just a little bit, Joe, if you don't mind, uh, a little bit more about expert witnesses. Yes, Just please. a couple of minutes before our break. But yeah. um, a lot of people don't quite understand. A lot of people don't understand. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> that expert witnesses are paid. And one of the challenges, of course, as an expert witness is demonstrating that <clears throat> you're testifying the truth and your expertise is not being paid for the, by the party that hires you. And uh, very often that's a very significant challenge to overcome by, for the expert in providing the sense that they're reliable even though they're being paid. And some experts, depending upon their area of expertise, could be paid as much as $1,500 an hour. Yeah. So there is a natural incentive to think that their, their testimony is being paid for, not just their opinion. 
But when you lose that one time, you've lost your credibility and you're out of business. So uh, those of us that have ethics, and I think most of the experts always do, I've testified quite a few times as an expert witness and uh, have not been challenged or had any problems with that beyond normal cross-examination. Sure. So it's time to go to break. So we'll be back in uh, two or three minutes. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from joe at financialforensicservices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. We're back for the second section uh, session of How to Overcome the Natural Fears and Anxiety of Testifying in Court and for Depositions. So, Gene, you want to talk about the preparation for this and uh, how we get ready for the testimony and uh, get ourselves mentally ready? Sure, Joe. Thanks. Um, in order to put the that topic in proper perspective, we need to talk about the different types of testimony that's provided. The first type of testimony, which is typical, is depositions. Depositions precede most trials. This is the opportunity for the parties, both plaintiff and defendant, um, to to question witnesses, to anticipate what they're going to testify, their area of expertise, their knowledge, and how they might be useful in the case, either as the uh, uh, for the defendant or the uh, plaintiff. That is really most cases where most testimony takes place, not like on television where it takes place in the courtroom. Most depositions unfold in the privacy of a well-appointed conference room um, and may only involve the witness, a court reporter, and opposing counsel and defense counsel. Other cases, and I've been in such cases, high-level profile cases, where there may be as many as 22 people in the room, 
making not only crowded but rather intimidating. Which brings us to the topic, how does one properly prepare? That preparation depends upon what you're testifying and uh, your role in the case. The stress, the anxiety is, is the greatest when you're the plaintiff and defendant because you're either defending yourself or you're prosecuting your case. Other witnesses, fact witnesses, are generally testifying to the things they know pursuant to the uh, circumstances. What time of day was it? Did they see this person into the room in question? When did they leave? Things that they have knowledge of. Of That's not too challenging, um, depending upon one's memory, of course, (laughs) and willingness to remember. So the preparation begins with knowing what the case is about. There's many documents that are filed prior to the deposition, including discovery documents, um, questions relative to to the background, disclosures such as documents, prior testimony. So the witness will have quite a bit of material generally to review. In very simple cases, it may just be a single page uh, of facts, circumstances, reminders, date, times, and places. In more complex cases, um, it can be a little bit more difficult. In one of my expert witness cases, I produced a report. We'll talk about reports a little bit later and their role in these types of cases. Um, My report was 16,232 pages. Approximately. Approximately. And uh, plaintiff's counsel was, or defense counsel was very aggressive with me. And one of the first questions they asked was, uh, is there any possibility in this report that there's an error or you've uh, uh, recorded a mistake? And my response, rather snappy, I said, yes, of course, but you find it. And he didn't. And he didn't. But most reports are much smaller, smaller than that. And generally, the information... Um, to review and prepare is relatively small. I'm involved in a case right now where the plaintiff, excuse me, the defendants entered into the record about 15,000 to 20,000 pages of documents which I had to review. And the side on which I was on produced about 5,000. So we had about 25,000, 20 to 25,000 pages of documents which needed to be reviewed and distilled. Um, one doesn't have to memorize those documents and one's always able to ask to see the document, which brings up a very important point. One of the things that attorneys like to you do is put pressure on the witness in an attempt to intimidate them. So preparation is going to be very important. The other aspect of it is, is understanding the significance of their answers. Some of the answers are very simple and they're not really material, but there are other questions that are material and they're significant. They can be the difference between making and breaking a case. For example, in a criminal case, positively identifying the alleged perpetrator. One can't testify, I think it's him, although that may be possible. That's not very helpful. A positive identity of the accused is often necessary for a conviction. In civil cases, um, it can be far more nuanced. When we're talking about money, we're talking about cases involving fraud, industrial accidents, uh, precision is also important. But the parties will generally decide on the, the, the venue, the structure, who's going to participate, and 
the types of questions that are going to be asked. There are interrogatories that are filed in the common or in the course of a case, which be, which take place and are exchanged between the parties before the trial. So there's some idea as to what the witness will have to uh, or should be prepared to answer to. In most cases, the attorney with who is calling the witness will be per, be provided the time to prepare those witnesses. There are some last-minute cases where the or where the witness hasn't much time to prepare, and those are a little bit more difficult. It also depends upon the nature of the case and the experience of, of the lawyers. I was in a case uh, as a deponent, and the attorney questioning me, very tiring, about seven and a half hour deposition with breaks, of course, and a lunch break. Um, but I noticed during the uh, 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 direct his asking the questions he was using a three, lo- very large three ring binder and he had written down all the questions and he wasn't listening to the answer so to one of the questions I just tested him I don't recall what the question was but it was simple but I certainly know what the answer was not and I answered green he looked up from his book of questions looked at me wrote down the answer green and went on to, to the, the next, next question, question. and went instantly on to the next question not even thinking the answer green had nothing to do with the question and was entirely incorrect so there is a a burden on the witness to pay attention as to what's going on I'll share with you in just a few moments some techniques but let me just talk a little bit about some of the other preparations I tell my students one of the things that they have to learn and the most difficult thing to learn in, in testifying is that testifying is not a conversation like you and I are having. The best answers that a deponent or a witness can offer are yes and no. And I have to remind myself, Joe, every time I get on the stand and testify that <clears throat> the best answer is yes, because the temptation for the witness is to provide more detail. Explain it. Explain it. Or say something like, and there's something else I want to tell you. Depending upon the opposition, they may want to. Lo- they may love to hear more of what you have to say. Don't you find also that it may be helpful, uh, particularly in very significant cases? Of course, if we're a party to the case, they're all significant. But in a large case, that you may want to uh, look at the dockets and see when the opposing attorneys are going to be uh, working in court on another matter and just attend court and watch their demeanor and their style so you know what to anticipate when it comes time for you to be on the stand against those attorneys. That's an excellent point, Joe. And uh, just recently, a few weeks ago, I did that very thing. I went to court the week before the trial and uh, arrived on the first day and had the opportunity to not only see the judge in action, take a look at the courtroom, know the procedures, where the witnesses uh, uh, sat or were uh, sequestered, and uh, had a a better sense of feeling of the courtroom, the parties, and uh, put me at ease. In spite of all of my experience, I thought that was very important. That's not a waste of time. And when you see how the attorneys uh, handle themselves, uh, I know when I was a a detective on the Houston Police Department working various kinds of cases. I had a particular matter uh, and I had 
had seen the attorney in action before, and we watched him, and uh, we had offered his client uh, a 15-year sentence, and the attorney uh, was very cocky. No, we're going to win this case. We're not going to talk to you about uh, a plea bargain. And uh, so he got me on the stand. You always wait for the questions that start with how or why, because you're obligated to answer them if they ask you how or why. So he asked me, uh, when you got to uh, the home where you arrested my client, uh, you say his brother invited you into the house? I said, yes. He said, "Have you ever seen the brother before? I said, no, sir, I had not. He said, have you ever seen my client before? I said, no, sir. He said, would you please just explain to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury how it was you knew which of these two brothers you were supposed to be arresting with this warrant you claim you had? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, how did you know? I said, well, I recognized your client from his mugshots from the last five armed robberies he'd been arrested for. He said, your honor, I moved for a mistrial. He said, you asked the man, move on. And he asked two or three more how or why questions. And I met my obligation and answered them. And the jury gave his client 45 years. Oh, after it was all over, I went over and apologized to the defendant and told him, you know, sorry that it worked out that way. We thought 15 years was certainly uh, sufficient for his crime, but apparently his attorney had other plans. So best of luck. I hope you make parole someday. And uh, if you wait for those how or why questions, you can get in. Uh, I couldn't have got his criminal record in otherwise, but he asked. So Perfect. listen, listen to the question. All right. Uh, we've got a uh, caller on the line, uh, Ryan from Colorado. Ryan, what's your question? Joe and Gene, how are you doing, gentlemen? Enjoying the show, and it's some great information. Great. Uh, Glad to have you with us. As you know, I've been an investigator for nearly as long as Gene, and I know very, very long ago we used to end up in court probably two or three times a week. Um, now, with the, everybody wanting to settle cases, you don't end up there as much. So knowing what to do when you do end up there is very important. Um, and I think one of the aspects of being prepared is being able to ideally meet with your attorney on your side to discuss what they expect of you um, when you're going to court. And if not that, at the very least, have a you know lengthy phone conversation. And I bring this up because I, I actually had an attorney last week where they wanted me to testify. And he said, well, just show up with your report with no discussion ahead of time. And this was a new client. And I said, no, we need to talk about this and what you're expecting. Now, fortunately for me, it was a, a very, very minimal investigation, probably one of the shortest investigations I've done. So there was not much to it. But still, I think you want to have that discussion and or meeting with your attorney to say, what exactly do you expect and what do you want from me when we're in there? Yeah, when you have 20 or 25 years experience and the attorney has 20 or 25 days experience, perhaps, uh, you know, he could learn a little bit about the case and how you normally present your evidence. And he might be able to do a little better job himself because it does take a team. 
Exactly. You know, and, and, and I've told many clients that, you know, we're on team John Doe. If John Doe is the uh, eventual client, uh, you know, the attorney, the investigator, everybody's on team John Doe and we're all trying to do the best for you. So we need to all put our heads together, but we need to discuss it ahead of time, you know, so we, we know exactly what we're going to do when we're in court. Absolutely. Yeah, very good, Brian. Um, you make a very, very good point, and I think for any investigator or anyone who has spent any time involved in the system who has been questioned, deposed, or testified, notice there's always the possibility of a question coming from field left and uh, being not prepared for it, not having the opportunity to talk to the attorney or the client um can can significantly adversely impact the outcome of the case if if not uh, jar the confidence of the witness neither Absolutely. of which are good outcomes and Joe, I love your story about getting the criminal background in um, that, you know, the attorneys have a motto, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Well, obviously, this attorney did not know that when he questioned you. That That is not unusual. You just have to prepare for it. And, of course, I had uh, answered a lot of his questions before we got to that point. I just played the dumb old country boy from East Texas and didn't explain anything and, you know, took the position that I was kind of cowered down by him and Till he uh, slipped in that how or why question, and all of a sudden his demeanor changed, and the whole uh, whole uh, tenor of the entire matter uh, turned around very quickly. Absolutely, that, that comes well, that comes from years of experience being on the stand too. Absolutely, I'm, I'm right. enjoying the information, and it's great information for anybody that hasn't testified as well. So, uh, enjoying it, you guys. Thank you so much for calling in. All right, All right, Gene, take care. what's our next subject here? I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, preparation, Joe. Um, some of the things that uh, witnesses ought to know, uh, regardless of the venue, is that uh, they're able to bring notes with them but one of the and files, documents, and other types of things. But they need to understand that anything you bring into the courtroom as a witness, whether you're a fact witness or expert witness, will be provided to the other party. But here's something many people don't know, even the most experienced witnesses, that the witness, while testifying, can take notes themselves. Why would that be important? What would the, uh, the witness do by taking notes? Things come to mind that they haven't remembered. They have answers to questions that were asked previously but didn't provide a good answer. So taking notes particularly when there's a break in the attorneys in question or the judge is asking questions, is a good time to take those things down that came to mind when you didn't have the answer when first asked. You can always correct your testimony by interrupting the process and offering the chance or requesting the chance to correct an answer. Yes, and I've had uh, attorneys on the other side uh, demand to see my notes and uh, start questioning about them. And uh, there again, if they take the notes from you, everything in those notes can be entered into the record. So your note might say to yourself, I didn't realize he was as guilty as he was, but now I remember he had two guns instead of just one. And otherwise you couldn't get that in. But if the attorney asked for it and it's in your notes, it's in for testimony. Perfect. All right. Um, anything else on preparation before we have to go to break here, Gene? Yeah, there, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, dress and attire. Um, 
I was in the court not long ago, and I was rather surprised on how casually dressed the jurors were. Um, but the witnesses, the parties, certainly the attorneys, uh, need to dress to a different standard. Absolutely. And uh, regardless of the type of case or the type of witness that you're involved or a type of witness that you are, um, I think it's important not to dress the role, but to dress professionally enough. To dress in a, a fashion that's presentable and um, demonstrates that you're taking the circumstances serious. I've seen witness, uh, witnesses in arbitration cases where they came, uh, the witness came in in dirty jeans and a torn uh, sweatshirt. That doesn't build confidence in the credibility of the testimony or that which uh, uh, the, the witness has to offer. And if you're in a arbitration or a mediation, uh, those arbitrators and uh, the people that are doing the uh, taking the testimony and trying to help you solve the case are often retired judges or magistrates that know the law. They assess credibility, and uh, in an arbitration. They are the judge, and whatever they rule is what's going to happen, and you want to make a favorable impression on them uh, to give your testimony as much credibility and yourself as much credibility as you possibly can, uh, rather than looking like somebody that uh, slept at the train station last night. All right, it's time to go to break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes to wrap this thing up. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. 
All right, we're ready to talk about uh, the final session here on how to overcome natural fear and anxiety and testifying for depositions or in court. Uh, Gene, let's chat a little bit now about uh, some of the trick questions that attorneys may try to pull on you and uh, how that can be overcome. Sure, Joe. Um, everybody knows, um, who's ever watched a, a good movie or a television knows that ter- attorneys can be very skillful in confusing the facts and confusing witnesses and challenging witnesses aggressively. Um, there's a host of different techniques, but some of the more common ones uh, used by attorneys are insisting on yes or no answers where there is no possibility of offering a yes or no answer. And here's one of the... the Here's one such questions. Do you love your children or are you lying? Yes or no? Now, how does anyone answer that question, yes or no? You don't. Just because they want it doesn't mean they get it. That, uh, that's right. Um, but there's a variety of different answers that one can answer uh, or provide when offered one of these challenging yes or no answers. Um, most often, I like to respond with, I need a little bit more information before I can answer yes or no. I offer uh, uh, another response asking, at what time of day did that occur? What day of the week did that occur? Was it indoors or outdoors? Much like the hypothetical questions that attorneys like to ask in order to trick you and walk you into a trap. And by the way, anytime an, uh, an attorney poses a hypothetical, let me ask a hypothetical, Mr. Ferraro. You know there is a trick and trap just around, around the corner. And the best response when those types of questions are posed is to simply ask for more information. Ask what time of day was it? Was it raining? Was it snowing? Was the sun shining? Was it a Tuesday or a Wednesday? How many people were present? Was there traffic outside and inside? I have a repertoire of canned responses uh, in which I just overcome that question and overcome the attorney's uh, capacity to even respond to those questions. And very often they say, well, before I'm not going to go into it in that detail, let's just let's just move, move on. on to and let me let me ask another question. Or you could give him a hypothetical answer. Right. Yeah, correct. That's very good. Okay. All right. So another common um, uh, uh, trick played by attorneys is to mischaracterize your testimony. And this is a, this goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, earlier proper, proper preparation. If you testified earlier in a deposition, you should know what you said in that deposition before you go to trial and testify in court. It's very easy for an attorney to, to uh, misinterpret or mischaracterize your testimony. And it's perfectly acceptable for the witness not to argue with the attorney, but to challenge him. To simply say, that's not, that's not my prior testimony. Or request to have the record read back, read back so that we can all hear what was actually said either by the witness or the question by the attorney. Um, Another technique is to, is to ask the witness to speculate. If, in fact, the gun was fired twice, would the uh, victim have been hit and possibly murdered? In, in, the hypothetical, uh, in this hypothetical, the uh, uh, victim was shot once, lived, 
and the question is posed to the witness, what would have happened if he had been shot twice? That hypothetical is impossible to answer. answer. And asking the witness to speculate is intolerable. And uh, the witness doesn't have to tolerate that. While the attorney uh, that they represent or the other side may be sleeping at the switch and not come to the rescue, there are things the witness can do. And one of the tools that I use is often turn turn to the judge and ask the judge for a clarification. The judge may intervene on your behalf and say to the, to the judge, I too agree that question calls for speculation, and I think you ought to rephrase the question, giving giving you a few more minutes or seconds to rethink and collect your thoughts while the attorney is preparing another speculation for your question. Yeah, we've had situations where the attorney will ask a compound question and expect a short answer, and I simply turn to the judge and ask him which of those questions I should answer. And uh, they will chastise the attorney and have them get a little more specific in the future. Very good. Um, a couple of other tips I think are, are, are uh, that are appropriate. Uh, the temptation is sometimes to be a wise guy, to be a little bit smarter than you actually are and uh, talk back to the attorney. Um, of course, you should never call, uh, call anyone in, in such a venue a name or mischaracterize or misstate their name um, or call them anything inappropriate. Um, but it's best to be polite, be respectful. It goes a very long way, particularly in the case of a jury. The jury's going to evaluate the credibility of that witness, not only by what they say, but how they behave, whether they fiddle with a pen, piece of paper, whether they're looking the attorney in the eye or looking at the, at the jury or looking at the judge or looking at the ceiling as if they're looking for an answer that's written on the ceiling. So demeanor, behavior are very, very important to the credibility of the witness and providing the witness that sense of security, knowing that they're doing a good job and uh, uh, providing the answers that are necessary. Yeah, and when you get an attorney that's being arrogant or smart, as you were saying, it's always best to take the high road and take the most professional position you possibly can, address the attorney as Mr. or Mrs. or whatever, and uh, never put yourself on the same level and you'll always persevere. That's correct. Uh, there, 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 is, there is no substitute for clear, short answers, but being polite at the same time in spite of how you're treated or you think you're treated by opposing counsel. Okay, but as long as you're being uh, uh, professional in it, you can still sometimes uh, reply with uh, an answer that might be somewhat humorous and make things go a little bit lighter and not quite as serious as uh, it's perceived to be. Yeah. Um, a courtroom or any venue in which testimony is being taken is a serious place, but I was in a uh, recent uh, case, uh, and I observe. I, I observed this. I wasn't a party to the case, um, but the bald. The, the judge in this case was completely bald, and the opposing counsel, when he stepped to the podium to uh, uh, begin his uh, 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 his direct testimony, he too was bald, and the judge interrupted him right at the start, and he, and he stroked his head across his bald head, and he said to the uh, attorney. We all, you, you seem to know the same uh, barber that I do and has good taste in haircuts. 
and it sort of broke it broke the 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 tension in the room. This was a very serious matter, and uh, I don't think there was a person in the room that uh, didn't give it a little bit of a chuckle. Um, but it's not the place of the um, um, uh, uh, witness to make jokes, be sarcastic, or do any uh, do things that are intentionally entertaining. But there have been a few recorded cases in which witnesses have said things that uh, have been recorded have been recorded and referred to and repeated again and again. And here's one for you, Joe. I'll read this, and uh, hopefully our listeners can follow it along. <clears throat> the attorney asked, Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? The witness says no. Attorney responds, did you check for his blood pressure? No. Did you check if he was breathing? No. Attorney then asks, so then isn't it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? The witness says, no. The attorney says, how can you be so sure, doctor? And the witness replies, because prior to, to, my t prior to the autopsy, his brain was in a jar on my desk. There you go. You ask and you get it. Yeah. So here's a couple more. Um, attorney asks the witness, what gear were you wearing at the moment of impact? The witness responds, uh, Gucci sweater and Reeboks. <laughs> Here's one more for you. <clears throat> How was your first marriage terminated? By death. And by whose death was it terminated? Take a guess, was the response of the witness. <laughs> so, we find very often att attorneys do ask interesting questions, providing an opportunity for a funny answer. But I don't recommend it as a matter, matter of practice. Very good. Um, so, how does one go about becoming an expert witness? Uh, you talk about the hourly rates and so forth. It may be a good place for someone to think about uh, having their expertise applied to a new career. Sure, Joe. Uh, one of the first criteria of becoming an expert witness is being an expert in something. Experts of all types and professions are, are used in all sorts of cases. Um, but if one has sufficient expertise, whether it's window cleaning, aviation and aircraft, truck driving, construction, or in my case, investigations, um, eventually, if they do enough work and testify enough, cases will come their way. But there's organizations which can be found on the internet where one can s uh, upload a resume or CV, curriculum vitae, as it is uh, used in the industry for experts, where their expertise can be advertised so that an attorney looking for a special type of expertise, whether it's a slip and fall in a grocery store, an automobile accident, or some other tragedy, or a case involving fraud <clears throat> or asset recovery, a witness might be available. So having having some expertise is absolutely necessary. But there is also it is also necessary to have the willingness to be challenged by attorneys, to like to testify, write reports, um, and uh, your skills and abilities to be put on uh, 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 on on the show uh, to be presented for others to hear. And challenge. I think you also have to be able to uh, 
decide that you want to make the commitment to get not only the experience but the expertise to get the certification if there is one. Uh, you and I are both certified fraud examiners. Uh, for those that are not familiar with that, uh, that means that we are certified and have expertise in uh, the various parts of the fraud uh, profession on the part of the bad guys and the investigation and the inquiry on the side of the good guys. But it's a lot of books to read, a lot of tests to take. And I know the tests now, I would put it on the same level as the test for a CPA or the bar examination. So if you're not committed enough to study the books, take the practice test, learn the material, and present yourself for examination, and you don't deserve to be certified. And that is, I think, one of the best uh, places to get started as an expert in our particular field. And most fields have a similar certification or recognition, I believe. That's absolutely correct, Joe. And certifications of all types are available for all professions and areas of expertise. And it brings us to the point of the in the discussion about for Dyer, the the need for the witness to <clears throat> explain that experience and their credentials. Thank you very much. All right, Gene. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been uh, most informative. Uh, I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of uh, your experience and your expertise, and we appreciate your contribution to uh, the profession. Uh, I want to. Uh, Remind our listeners that we're on every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Mountain Time. Our guest next week uh, is Chris Redman, who is an attorney who specializes in uh, international cases, working both the domestic side and the international side. Uh, he is a former official with the Office of International Affairs in our federal government, and he also uh, helps write the international laws from around the world. I know he was t talking with me just the other day about one new law that they have proposed, and that is a uh, internationally accepted standards on judgment enforcement. And they have presented that proposal to 22 countries, and 21 of them have said, yes, we would entertain pursuing that and supporting it. It was only challenged by one country, and they said, we need more information. And you can probably guess which country that was. It was Switzerland. They, they wanted to know more, but they certainly didn't say no. So Chris has a great deal of expertise. Uh, he is a world-renowned expert in international law. And subject to his availability and the court dockets, we expect to have him here next week unless a judge decides otherwise. Um, and remember, uh, those of you that are interested, uh, our new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement, is off the press. And fortunately, we have made international bestseller with that. So if you're interested, uh, give us a call and we'll get you a copy. Thanks so much, and we look forward to being with you next Wednesday afternoon at 5 o'clock Mountain Time for the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Good day.
Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.